Hey there, and welcome to the Aurelius Podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder and CEO at Aurelius and your host for the show. This episode, our guest is Greg Bernstein, the Senior Director of User Research at Vox Media. Greg previously spent time at MailChimp, where he also managed their user research practice for some time. Greg is a regular speaker, writer, and contributor to the world of user research and UX. His role at Vox is a unique and challenging one, where he's doing user research at scale for a very broad audience set, people who read the news. He shares with us the challenges and opportunities this brings to his work, and how exactly he helps Vox conduct user research to make smarter and more informed decisions. Because Greg has a range of experience in helping companies adopt and utilize a user research practice, we had a chance to chat in greater detail about how to make user research more strategic in the organization. We talked about the best ways to partner with business stakeholders and teams, how to share and act on research findings, and ways to allow user research findings to influence company direction. Pretty great stuff. Finally, Greg and I touched on recently popular topic of research ops and the idea of user research repositories. As some of you know, at Aurelius, we built our very own platform that helps UX designers, researchers, marketers, and product teams store all of their user research data in one place to create a central repository or database of user research knowledge. If you're doing user research now and you want a way to tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research data and key insights, you should check us out at Aurelius. Head over to our website for a 14-day free trial and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. And one final note before we get into the episode, if you enjoy what we're doing at the podcast and you think it's uh, helpful and valuable, we would really appreciate if you would take some time to leave a review. It really does help people find the show and more people getting the benefit and learning how to do user research and make better decisions. All right, with that, let's hear from Greg Bernstein. Welcome to the Aurelius Podcast, episode 32 with Greg Bernstein. He is the Senior Director of User Research at Vox Media, and he formerly led the research team at MailChimp popular mail platform. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Definitely. We're excited to chat with you today. And uh, as is, as is, has become tradition, I'll just ask you, you know, for folks who may not be familiar with you or your work, maybe give a little bit of background about what you're doing today and, and some things that you're sort of thinking about and, and top of mind for you. Sure. So what I'm doing today, uh, as you mentioned, I'm Senior Director of User Research at Vox Media. Uh, and it's a really interesting place to be because the research entails studying the people who consume the news, as well as the people who create news products and create news content. So there's this triangulation of trying to understand what do we build, uh, who are we building it for, uh, and how do we make it easy for people to get their content out into the world. Uh, and then if we want to throw some more uh, complexity in there, there's also how do we sell ads and make that easy so that we're putting ads in the right places to keep the lights on and pay my salary. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's a challenging place to be, but it's also pretty exciting. And in this day and age of, uh, I guess, fake news and uh, politically charged environment, uh, it feels like it's important work, which uh, makes it pretty easy to get out of bed in the morning and, and makes me excited to face the challenges of the day. 
definitely. That's super cool. And I'm actually glad that you touched on a couple uh, topics that I was planning to ask you about anyway. And just as a quick aside, it's, it's a personal pet peeve of mine with the whole ads on news outlets and platforms uh, as to where the modern content site has become 25% content and 75% other crap in my face getting in front of what I want to read or consume. Um, so I, I, I greatly appreciate at least, at least knowing that you're thinking about that <laughs> and I won't hold you personally responsible if it ever happens on Vox. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So well, Greg, one of the things I wanted to ask you, especially, you know, what you just brought up there, uh, very different environment at Vox. It almost sounds to me like what some people may struggle with in like a B to B to C environment. Uh, but that's slightly different for you because you've got, you know, consumers of both. Uh, the content ads, as well as like the people who have to create that and push it out, right? Right. Um, seems like an interesting challenge, but the, the easy question to ask is, you know, how much, how is that different from coming from MailChimp, which is, for those of you not familiar, uh, a mail platform basically helps you create automated email newsletters and communications in that way, right? Right. So the degree of difficulty is is higher because at MailChimp, to use the product, you had to sign up. So we had your email address. And we, you had to answer some questions about who you are and, and what kind of business you are, or if you're not a business, what kind of sole proprietor you are. Uh, we had some contextual information and some demographic information so that when there was a product question or a question of company roadmap, we knew that we could see what types of people were using our product. We knew we could ask them questions uh, either through a survey or by doing an interview with media uh, and with Vox properties in particular. And I should have mentioned, you know, Vox is seven different networks. There's Vox.com, but there's also The Verge and Polygon and Eater, SB Nation, uh, and a few other sites, uh, which we could talk about later. But news is, uh, our news is free. Uh, so you don't have to sign up for it. We don't have any identifying information. Uh, and it's also everywhere. You know, some people actually go to our websites, but Others use Apple News or Google News. Uh, a lot of people are using newsletters just to make everything come full circle back to MailChimp. Uh, we have our podcast. We have the Explained show on Netflix. So our audience is everywhere. A lot of them are unknown to us. And it makes it, it just adds to the complexity of, okay, how do we find the information that helps us build the right experience uh, and sell against it so that you know, we can, as I said, keep the lights on and pay salaries. Yeah. Yeah. So if I were to just summarize a little bit of what I'm hearing from you, Greg, is that, you know, with MailChimp, it's very much a product. You've got customers and certain probably segments of those customers. And you understand what their needs are to use that product. Whereas at Vox, there's it's information and consumption and, you know, uh, shrug emoji, right? <laughs> like, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, I constantly walk around and describe myself as the human shrug emoji because, <laughs> you know, my colleagues will ask questions and say, well, how would you describe somebody who listens to an Eater podcast? Uh, I mean, that could change day to day. You know, that, mm -hmm. that means it's a whole new study of, okay, how do we find these people who listen to the podcast? How do we get in front of them and ask some questions and understand, you know, how they consume a podcast in the first place and then how they found the Eater podcast? Um, we we're I guess, you know, this is probably a jumping off point to another conversation topic, but we're immature in our 
data collection practices. I mean, we have a ton of analytics. Uh, we have a lot of data on how people, how many people are consuming different types of content and what pages they go to. But in terms of the qualitative information, uh, that's really my focus: is understanding how do, how does somebody even find our content? What are the levers that we can then you know manipulate to help people find more of that content or find content they didn't even know that they might be interested in? So, so that's really that's the challenge for me and my team right now. Yeah. Well, then my 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 obvious natural question to that, Greg, is where do you start to get your arms around that, right? So let's let's just even rewind. You yeah. walk you walk into <laughs> Vox and you go, great, I've got this new role. Um, completely different set of challenges. Where do you even begin trying to tackle? I that? was. It was. Uh, I was brought in. It's funny. I was brought in to embed myself on a very specific team that was building tools for the newsrooms. So it was a story editor that let anybody at any of our different networks write their story, design the story, and send it out to the right places. Uh, and that was, that was my entire focus. And it was the best place to start because it let me understand what does it take to put media together? Who are those stakeholders? Who's jumping into a story to make sure that it looks good, it's factually correct, it's not being sent out to different places at the wrong time? So. That was an introduction to okay. This is what consumption, or I'm sorry, this is what media creation looks like. Um, as as I was doing that work, it was a lot of it was a lot of evaluative research. It was okay. We're building this thing. Um, let's make sure it's correct. Uh, or we're thinking about building this thing. What do we need to know about it? Uh, as I was talking to our different editorial stakeholders, the people who shape the news, I started hearing bigger picture issues like. You know, our audience seems to be growing in these places. I wish we knew more about that. Or, you know, it would be really great is if we could do X, Y, and Z, which is what some of our competitors offer. Um, I started to collect more of those big picture insights and kind of, well, carved out a larger role, which was not just understanding the tools that we can build for news creation, but what's this larger ecosystem of of news in general, who's consuming it, what do we need to be building to compete with other news outlets? And it was that starting place of starting with our content creators that really let me understand one side of it. Uh, and then I was able to start proposing projects like, how does somebody keep up with a developing story? Like, let's say there's, uh, the best example I could think of is, let's say a sports coach is rumored to be fired, and then the coach is fired, and then there's a press conference about the firing, and then there's rumors about who the new coach will be and then a press conference announcing who the next coach will be. How does somebody keep up with that type of developing story? Mm -hmm. And that was our first real concerted effort to understand how does somebody keep up with developing news uh, and breaking news. Um, so then we started to piece together, okay, if this is how people consume the news, what are the things we can build to help them keep up? Or better yet, what are the strategies we can employ uh, to keep people engaged in a story? So what are the things we could do across Twitter, Facebook, and our own website. So it was really starting with understanding what it takes to make the news and then slowly branching out to, okay, how do we understand consumption? Uh, and every project is now kind of an opportunity to say, okay, what's the big ecosystem of this thing we're thinking about? And it's forced us to start including different people in the conversation. So let's say we're thinking about building better reviews for The Verge just to pull an example out of thin air. There's the editorial side of it, 
There's the product side of it of, you know, what does this reviews page look like? There's also the sales side. How do we sell ads against this? There's the marketing side. How do we tell the story about what we're doing here at The Verge? So it all starts with understanding the ecosystem and, and making sure that every stakeholder and every perspective is included so that we understand what are the things we can do here and what would make sense from a business, a user, and editorial perspective. Got it. So this is pretty fascinating. And uh, again, to try to to try to sum this up, so what happened is you came into Vox and it was very much, at least what it sounds to me like, uh, evaluative research, right? Let's uh, let's take a look at the tools we have mm-hmm. to produce that news, right? That, publish publish yep. that news. And, uh, and through the process of doing that successfully, basically, you know, and I would assume the output of that evaluative research, things like usability testing, interviews about the tool, uh, were product and feature recommendations or changes, right? Correct. And it sounds like through the process of you doing that successfully, uh, sort of opened the door for you to start suggesting, well, you know, there's more we can do with this kind of work, which, which now very much is like foundational uh, or generative type research, which is very much as to use your words, the big picture stuff of, well, what is it that we should be doing? That's right. I, I think with every bit of generative research we did, um, it actually mitigated how much evaluative research we had to do because we were understanding the context in which consumption and creation took place. So we didn't have so many questions that required a test because we were already getting that information by asking, you know, tell me about how you are trying to write a review. Tell me about how you are trying to share stories in newsletters. Uh, a lot of the questions that would have required that evaluative research were now already answered in the generative research. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that I, I don't want it to sound like it was all, you know, I did this work and it, it led to us having a different approach to research. It was also just the act of sharing what I was finding would would get people from other teams to say, hey, this is fascinating. You know what I'd love to know is X, Y, and Z. Or next time you do this study, what would be helpful to the marketing team is if you ask this question, which that's that's the best possible outcome because now you have everybody asking for more research and getting more informed about their job. You know, they're they're not guessing, they're trying to get better information. Right. Well, anytime somebody is asking more of the service you provide, that's usually a good signal. Yes. Um, but I want to call out something you said there, which I think I think is a very important insight. Uh, no pun intended here. <laughs> of something that you said, which is by doing that generative research properly and more often, it actually mitigated the need to do more evaluative research. And what I took away from that, Greg, is that, you know, oftentimes, uh, at least it's been my experience, companies start with evaluative research. It's very easy to say, let's test or let's do research on this thing we made to see mm-hmm. if it's right or wrong, good or bad. Well, by doing the generative research and understanding what thing you should make actually removes the need to do some of the evaluation, some of the usability testing type stuff later. Right. Yeah. I, I, I 100% agree with that. You know, it, it's the work used to be tied to a sprint calendar. You know, every two weeks we had different tasks and the work was always, okay, this sprint, we need to test this thing and also interview about this other thing. And now the research work is not tied to a sprint calendar. It's, you know, me and my team get, we recruit, we're recruited into help with how can we test this thing that we've built, but that's not our primary focus. The primary focus is what do we need to know about the product roadmap, about the company roadmap, 
what are these big picture things we should be thinking about? So yeah, you're you're hundred percent right that it does mitigate the need to do so much evaluative research. That's really great. Um, so another thing that you said in there too, Greg, was well, you made a point about how let's bring marketing in. Let's more people are asking questions that research can answer, and basically, the more people you have invested, the better. The more people you have invested in user research and those studies, the more successful you're going to be. Mm -hmm. So. You know, with that is there's this theme of like, how do we get that work we do and share that out so that it has an impact beyond maybe the initial request? Because most oftentimes it does. And this is a conversation that's happening. And I know you've been a part of it across the industry right now. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a thing that we're all sort of trying to solve. And it's definitely something that we're passionate about here at Aurelia. So I'd love to just kind of hear, you know, what does that mean f to you? And maybe an example of how you've done that at Vox. Sure. So we are a very Slack-heavy organization, partly because um, a lot of our employees are remote. So conversations are all happening in Slack. There's Slack rooms for everything. And anytime I find something interesting, I try to share it in as many channels as possible um, where it's appropriate. What's fortunate is none of our channels are closed or, or locked. Anybody can join them, which means there's marketing people, there are salespeople, there's uh, leadership working in a lot of these channels. So just by osmosis, they can't help but be exposed to research. Uh, so it's really, there's a lot of intentionality behind it. You know, as researchers, we have to share our work and make sure that it's seen. Otherwise, what good is it? Uh, but there's, there's also, uh, you know, I guess the other part of it is there's an opportunistic side to it where if I hear something that relates to our podcast marketing team, I'm excited about that. That's something where it's not really something I was asked to do. It's not something where there's a stakeholder I need to show this to, but I'm hearing something about podcasts that I think will be useful to the company. And, you know, we might be siloed. We might be in different parts of the company, but if the podcast team does well, that's good for the entire organization. So I feel like I'm, it's my duty to share this information with the people who could use it, whether it's required or not. So I will be opportunistic and say, hey, podcast marketing team, we did this study. I think you're going to be interested in what we found. And I, I try to do that. And I try to get my team to do it. Just share the work, make it valuable to everyone. Yeah. So that's, this is great. Um, and I want to, I want to ask you to maybe even get more specific if you can. So you, you mentioned that you share these things in, in sort of these findings, you know, via Slack, perhaps, and maybe even other ways. But I'm curious, like, what form does that take? What is it exactly that you're sharing? <laughs> so I want to go back to my MailChimp experience. Um, when I was just starting to write reports that I was sharing with our leadership team, and my team had just done this very big study. I think we were in San Francisco for a week, and we did, I think between us, we did 22 interviews with some of our biggest customers. And we wrote this 40-page document that was comprehensive and dense and full of so much good information. I shared it with our CEO and it was in Google Docs and I saw his avatar appear and three seconds later disappear, which <laughs> that was my lesson that, okay, this is way too long. We can't write documents like this anymore. Uh, and from then on, I, I only write in bullet points. So and with, that's an exaggeration, but in Slack, what I'm doing is I'm taking three to five bullet points from usability tests and saying, hey, after every test, here's what I learned. Uh, or after I wrap up a study, 
I'll share a report that's written in Google Docs, but there's also that here's the things you need to know. Here's the TLDR. So there's, re there's really two ways I'm sharing information. There's the bullet points that are in Slack, and then there's a Google Doc that has the bullet points, but then with a little more context. Uh, and I figure this way, if somebody is really interested in what I've shared as a bullet point, they can click into the doc and read it. But no matter what, they're going to learn something just because it's going to pass by them in, in Slack and they'll see those bullet points. Yeah. Okay. So, so taking a step back here, this is, this fits very well with Slack, right? Because, um, for anybody living under a rock, uh, or those of us, I suppose that don't work in technology and also living under a rock Slack <laughs> is, uh, it's a, it's an instant chat application, right? Where everybody can kind of get behind this. And so I would assume you've got channels that you just sort of, you just sort of plug these into because, well, that fits in a Slack channel. It's a chat. Post some bullet points. Take a look at this at your leisure. You don't have to, but um, you know, if it's there in that format, it's just uh, it's very brief and just here's what we learned. Boom, boom, boom. Yep. And then you follow that up with uh, with a link to maybe the more in depth findings. Uh, here, here's why we came to those conclusions. Here's a little bit more about the study. Things like that. I assume. That's exactly right. Uh, and. You know, I've experimented with other ways of sharing information. And I, I think you discussed this with Aaron Walter on a previous episode where when we worked together at MailChimp, we were using Evernote as a repository for any information uh, related to our users. So we had, uh, we had all our usability tests, our interviews, those were going into Evernote. We also had data from our app, you know, statistics around usage and who was signing up going into Evernote. Um, but Evernote eventually became a ghost town because it wasn't in people's daily habits to keep going there and checking. Uh, and another problem was that as we hired more people, they just didn't know about it. So that meant the amount of possible information that could be going into Evernote wasn't going in there. Uh, so the lesson I learned from that was put the information where people already are. So at one point when I started at Vox, I was playing with Airtable thinking this might be great. It would be you know, a, a way to share my work with people and, and expose them to it. But then I realized nobody in our organization uses Airtable. I'd be the only one going to it. It would be, it would be Evernote part two. So for me, that lesson was keep the information where people are. And if that's Slack and Google Drive uh, and, and emails, which you know, that's, that's another way we can share information. Uh, if it's not there, people aren't going to see it. That's a, that's a huge insight. It's a huge insight. And it actually goes back to another principle that a lot of us here in the industry, again, assuming product people, uh, you know, UX designers, folks like that, listening to the show, is, the, is that BJ Fogg model about behavior. And I think you nailed it there, which is to say, like, people didn't have that behavior established to go to that place and continuously contribute and or consume what you're learning from research. And so then it died. That's you, you said it way better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was practicing that for a good hour before we jumped on the call uh, just to deliver it. I, I was baiting you the entire time. Perfect. You know, it's not going to get better than this. We might as well stop talking. Yeah, that's right. Joseph, <laughs> let's wrap it up. <laughs> uh, very good. No, I, I think that that's a big deal. You know what? I'm, I want to ask a related question about that because you, you, you sort of rang another bell that is something that's very widely discussed right now. And again, something that we're very focused on here at Relius, which is this idea of a research repository or a library yep. of insights that you can manage. 
you know, what's the motivation behind that? Uh, and maybe even recount your days at MailChimp and, and maybe more recently at Vox as to why you would use something like Airtable. Sure. I mean, I think the, uh, the, the utopian ideal is I want all my information in one place where anybody can find anything at any time, right? Like that's, that's what we all want for our teams and our organizations. Uh, and Aaron at MailChimp, he, you know, he was putting everything into Evernote and he, he's the one who had the idea of what if everybody could have access to my Evernote and see all of this feedback we're getting from customers and all these emails. Uh, and it, it really is, a, I love the idea of it, of, of making this information accessible to anyone. But I don't know that the information that's in there isn't going to be, it's not going to be useful to everyone in an organization. So I feel like you need a curator. You need somebody who can point you in the right direction, who can shape the information and say, hey, revenue team, this is what you might be interested in. Hey, marketing team, this is for you. Uh, I do think there's a place for these insight repositories, but I, I don't know if they're repositories that should be org-wide. I think they're good for a research team where maybe, you know, Google Drive is famous for having a, somehow having terrible search, like you can't find things <laughs> in Google Drive. I don't know how that's possible. They, they invented modern search, but it, they can't. It just drips with irony. It's, and it's, yeah. it's something that everybody laments. It's like, yeah, you're, you're completely right. It's like, this is the thing that defined what search is, and it can't do it on its own product. Right. And I've, I took the time earlier this year to set up a, a library in Google Drive of there's a user research folder, and then there's you know usability test folder and interview folder. And then within those, there's, okay, Eater interviews and curved interviews. And I, had, I even made a guide that said, if, you know, if this is what you're looking for, go to this folder. And it's still not findable. It's just, it's, I feel like they rearrange the deck chairs every night. And then you know, mm -hmm. somebody logs in in the morning and things are in a different place. Uh, so when I, I just assume people will ask me questions. You know, we have a user research Slack channel where anybody can ask a question. There's also a user research report Slack channel where people can, because Slack searches better, they can search for reports there. But I, I haven't seen an organization-wide model that makes it easy to get the insights anybody needs that's relevant to them, that helps them make better decisions. And I also think as researchers, it's our job to help people understand what is this, the decision you're trying to make? What are the things that you need to know? Because if they find information that's two years out of date, but they don't realize it, or that talk to the wrong type of user, they're going to make some very wrong decisions. So as researchers, maybe we should be the middle person between the re repository and the client. Yeah, you, you know, and so that's a big deal, too, because and you also referred to that as uh, the curator, the curation of it, mm -hmm. um, you know because we talk with a lot of people who are doing this and some of our very own customers, frankly, are trying to solve this problem, even using Aurelius, what they found is uh, that's still necessary, right? Because while technology can take us so far at this point in time, uh, and I say at this point in time, um, mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a whole boatload of foreshadowing, which I won't get into, but at this point in time, <laughs> technology does not yet quite get the job done of that you know, curation thing. And so what we see people really doing and focusing on, I think more so Greg is, is being able to answer that question when one of your stakeholders or your business partners comes to you and says, Hey, do we have any research about this? So long as you have a great tool to be able to quickly get an answer to that, 
I think I think that is a massive step forward for a lot of teams and organizations. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I agree with that. I think, I mean, as researchers, we need to know where the information is. If if we can't find work, then you know what good is it? It is assuming you know all research has a shelf life. We still need to be able to find. Did we do something like this in the past? What did we learn from that that we can avoid any mistakes going forward? Uh, you know, what what do we already know that we don't need to ask again? And the researcher needs to be able to find this information. So I, I agree that there there's a need to have a way to store that information and make it useful for the research team or or the product team or whoever it is that owns that repository. Uh, but there's all like I said, there's always going to be that middle person. Uh, I think what uh, Tomer Schroen was doing when he was at WeWork was interesting with nuggetizing the findings. And uh, you know, for anybody listening who isn't aware, anytime they did an interview, they they went down to the atomic level of what did this person say about uh, you know the air conditioning in a building? What did this person say about the coffee, about the customer service? And if somebody searched for coffee, they would get anytime anybody ever mentioned coffee. Uh, and I believe that they made that a self-serve model uh, that then played videos of people saying these things about whatever it is you search, you know, whether it was coffee or air conditioning. Uh, but I, th- I still think that leaves out the context and the person there who could say, well, what are you hoping to learn here? What is it? What's the story that you want to get out of this? Uh, because you might just be making a story out of whole cloth, relying on bad data, out-of-date data. Uh, the wrong data. So I, I like how the industry is thinking about, you know, we need to solve this problem. Uh, and and I think we're on the cusp, but I I think we need to, I think there's work to do in terms of products, but also in terms of communicating the role of the researcher or the research lead and and what value that role brings to an organization. Yeah, that's, man. So that, again, that's just a, that's such a subtle but powerful point you added there, Greg, that I want to make sure that we highlight here which is um so in this case greg i think you said that better than i intended to with the whole (laughs) with the whole repository thing well because uh i think that's kind of the point i was trying to make which is like so long as we have that we could do our job better but but the way you said it was was very uh it was just very brilliant where so long as you can answer that question well and help people understand well what is it that you're trying to learn here you know that's that for right now at least for sure it's that human element and that really is like the essence of the role of uh, any great researcher to be able to say, let me help you get the answers to the questions you're trying to ask rather than just, you know, returning a result here. Here, right. here is the here is the data to your query. You know, this very like sort of cold calculated, uh, <laughs> you know, like zeros and ones type thing. I think that that's a really important point that you brought out, like tools help us do that better. Uh, right, but you still need to you still need to be able to do that because you're the one that it comes down to. I I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> I agree. Okay, good. <laughs> that, that was a good encapsulation. Nice, nice. Yeah, and that's um, that's a cool thing too. I, I, just as a quick aside, you know, obviously we had Tomer on the show uh, several episodes back, and and I recently wrote an article about Nuggets or Key Insights because I've seen a a big push, almost surprising to me to be honest with you, Greg, because this is the way I've always done research in sort of creating those nuggets or those key insights in that way. But I've seen mm-hmm. uh, sort of a groundswell of people 
you know, getting behind that and saying, this is the way we ought to be communicating and sharing our research. And the reason I say it's surprising for me is because I always assumed that people were doing it that way, but, uh, but perhaps that's not true. I mean, I think for us, the, the folks who are collecting the information, the, I guess we could call them tags or keywords or the nuggets. It's important for us just to know what do we hear? Like, what are the triggers for us that will remind us, okay, that's what came up during this series of tests or these interviews. But then I think it's up to us to translate that into the scenarios and the stories so that I can say, okay, when somebody is interested in finding a restaurant because their parents are coming to town, uh, an eater map comes in handy. Like the, the job of the eater map is tell me where to eat this weekend with my parents at this price range. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not how it's phrased when I do the interviews, but by by my tags and my notes and, and you know the keywords I highlight, uh, I'm then able to pull together that finding and, and communicate that in a way that the product team will understand it, the stakeholders will understand it, uh, you know, leadership will understand it. Uh, so the, the tags, I, getting back to that original point, like I don't think they're useful to the person who isn't the researcher but they're useful for the researcher to communicate the findings to that person who wants the information. Yeah. Yeah. With th- that retrieval. So when somebody says, well, what do we know about X, Y, and Z? Yep. You know, some, some alarm goes off in your head where you go, well, probably something that's tagged this, this, or this. And if I search this. Yep. Right. Yeah. Got it. You know, I'm curious, how do you handle that today? Which part of that? <laughs> Any that you'd like to share. So, I mean, we, we've all been, at least for those of us who work in an in-house organization, right? Uh, we've been in that situation where somebody goes, do we have inf- any information about this? Or do we have any research about this? Sometimes the answer is yes. And then when it is, I mean, how do you go about retrieving sure. that, right? Well, I guess the first question I ask to myself is, you know, is this even on the company roadmap? Like how... Even if I had this information, does it help this person? Uh, and if it's not something that's related to anything the company's doing, you know, then I'll ask, you know, what are you planning to do with this information? Uh, you know, what are you working on where you could use this? Uh, if I don't have the information because it's not really user research, like I get, there's a lot of role confusion. You know, people assume the researcher has all the information when we have an analytics team, we have a data science team. Sometimes the questions I get asked are better directed to a different team. So I'll say it's a it's a point uh, where I can, I guess, share some education, you know, hey, if you have this kind of question, this is where I can help. But for what you need, these two teams might be your best bet. Uh, but please come back to me if you have further questions. So there's a little bit of education in there. Uh, if it is a good question that would be useful to the company, uh, useful to product, editorial, whoever it is, uh, then I say, I look and see what we've done in the past. If if I have the information, great. If not, then it's, okay, we don't have this information, but I think this is a useful study. Um, I will ask them to fill out a project intake form. And I got that idea from Brenna Graves, who used to be on the Etsy research team. Uh, it's something that they put in place there. So I'll ask somebody to you know, give me some context around this project, um, what the deadlines are, what information they already have. Uh, and then once I have that information back from them, and I, I'll admit, sometimes that gets them to drop out of the process. They decide that the question isn't worth answering, uh, which 
is always interesting because it's, you know, well, how important was this to you if yeah. I never hear from you again? I mean, maybe that's but, a good thing, right? That Maybe that's a good vetting process. Right. It, it tells me that maybe this wasn't really something that was important. I mean, the, the inverse of that is maybe somebody's deciding to just guess, which I hope that's not happening. <laughs> sure. Uh, but once I have that forum, then, you know, we could schedule a conversation and I could talk about, well, here's the research possibilities. Here's what we already know, but this is what we need to know. These are some things we could do. And then I have to also balance that with what's already on research, you know, roadmap for the next few weeks or months. Uh, but it always starts with somebody just slacking me and saying, Hey, what do we know about this thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's curious because I, again, another more subtle point that you brought up there is like, maybe some of these questions aren't worth answering. There is of course that danger, which is very real of, well, forget it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to get the answer. I'm just going to guess, which is, so th that can end in two ways, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that can end in somebody who's maybe uh, very knowledgeable and has been exposed to a lot of research or customer exposure who has good intuition enough to guess. And that's actually okay in some cases. Yeah. Or it can end with, eh, whatever, I'm too lazy. <laughs> and, and, and I don't care to put the time, money, focus, or resources behind getting the answer, and we're just going to move forward despite that. Um, but, yeah. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, though, but, all right, so let's, uh, let's say those oddball questions that never go anywhere. I still keep a log of those. Mm -hmm. let's say I get the same question two or three times over the course of a year. And, and I'm speaking hypothetically, that's also an opportunity to, to go to, you know, my boss or a CPO or go to leadership and say, this is something that keeps coming up. It's not on a roadmap. It doesn't relate to anything we're doing, but I keep hearing it. And, and it's not a lot. It's a small sample size, but there's signal here. We should start thinking about it. So even those are opportunities to say, I think there's, I mean, uh, for lack of a better word, there's some energy around this thing. It's come up a couple of times. I think we should think about it. So I, I think of any, anytime somebody's asking a researcher a question, it's still something worth thinking about, something worth logging. And, you know, maybe it doesn't go anywhere, but maybe it is a signal that there's some work to be done there. Yeah. That's a useful point because maybe that question isn't quite mature enough yet. Maybe it, has, maybe it hasn't incubated or marinated in that person's mind long enough to to really warrant the answer yet, but um, asked in a couple of different ways, to your point, by maybe several people, all of a sudden we say, there's some attention that's, that's worth being paid to this thing at the time. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Greg, you mentioned there a couple times, in fact, this idea of a roadmap for user research. Yes. And, and that sounds uh, more solid than it really is. It's, you know, every quarter or so, or sometimes longer, there's the roadmap for the product team, uh, things that everybody's working on different parts of. Uh, research isn't directly tied to that roadmap, but there's, there's questions around the work we're doing this quarter, the work we're doing next quarter. And that's where I work with you know, company leadership to say, okay, this is what we're working on. What are the big questions we need to know? What are the things we need to be thinking about not just this quarter, but also next quarter, so we can get ahead of it so that when teams start doing this work, they're not starting empty-handed. They have an idea of, you know, what's the space that we're designing in or, or we're building for. Mm. Okay, that's good. Um, again, my natural question will be, what sort of, what form does that take? So uh, I would say very broad. So 
and I think that's by design. Uh, like going back again, going back to Mailchimp, our CEO for a while would just every year he'd say, "We have three big initiatives." You know, this year it's analytics, mobile, and personalization. And we'd say, "Okay, what does that mean?" And he'd say, "That's up to you." Uh, so, you know, we had guardrails. We had these three big initiatives, but it was up to the different teams to align on on what that meant. You know, product and engineering, or design and engineering. Uh, everyone would have to come together to agree on what does that mean? How do we fulfill those big initiatives? And at Vox, it's it's a little bit it's a lot more spelled out than that. It's more defined, but it's still we have two big things we're working on this quarter uh, and through the end of the year. The research questions around that are pretty open. Yeah. You know, something that something I just thought of as you were explaining that, Greg, is like there's almost this hard line that's getting drawn between evaluative research and generative foundational research in a lot of in-house companies, at least where the maturity of research and design has grown or crystallized, mm-hmm. is to where you know, they're really using this, this generative research, this what questions should we be asking to inform the stuff we ought to be working on, which really ought to feed the roadmap, right? It ought to feed the things that we end up designing or building. And then there's this hard line of, of doing the evaluative research, which is very much things like usability testing, whatever, right? On the thing you've already designed or made or built. Yep. But uh, especially with this, discussion around research ops now at these companies, I think it's empowering those people to sort of autonomously be able to do that evaluative research, you know, uh, test the things that they've designed or built so that we can free up, you know, a lot more of the bandwidth of the research team to ask those bigger questions of, well, what should we be making? I'm actually curious to ask you though, Greg, so a lot of what you were talking about I think people would argue falls under the banner of research ops. And that's what people, you know, that's what folks are discussing now, mm-hmm. which maybe even is a subset of design ops. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm curious though, like what's your take on that? Like what is a research op to you? Uh, from everything that I've read and from what I follow in research ops community, uh, it's a way to document and standardize everything it takes to conduct research. Uh, and and share it, but I, I feel like that's we're not quite there yet. But from what I can tell and from what I see, it's what are the best ways to build a usability lab? What are the best ways to recruit people? Uh, how do we compensate people? And it's it's really just a, a cataloging of the best practices so that when an organization is at the point where they're ready to do research on a regular uh, basis. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's already uh, an established way of doing it, which I think I, I like the idea of there being resources. The part that gives me pause is I feel like there's a lot in our industry of of not just research, uh, but in UX in general, where process is making it. It's almost uh, a gatekeeper to just doing the work where if you're not going to do it the right way, don't do it at all. If you can't set up your own usability lab, uh, maybe you shouldn't be doing usability testing. If you can't recruit this way, maybe you shouldn't recruit. Um, I, I don't like when things become so process-oriented that it creates a barrier to just doing the work itself. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like 
that's something just from talking to new researchers in the industry, that's always the thing that they get stuck on. Like, should I be doing X, Y, Z, or actually a better set of letters would be A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Mm-hmm. Um, when maybe just A is fine. If, if you're not doing research, like do some research, you don't have to do, you don't have to have a sample size of whatever, you know, Jakob Nielsen said is the right number. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to do everything the prescriptive way. I, I am just happy if research is happening mm-hmm. because I feel like that gets the ball rolling to more and better research. Uh, that, that was a long-winded and, and divergent answer, but when I hear ops, it just makes me think of prescriptive and dogmatic as I want to make sure that there's room for people to experiment or to just try things, but there's also the resources for people who are scaling up and building these teams and, and, those are the people I think research ops is for. Yeah. Uh, so, so tangential, divergent, whatever it might have been, I think it was, I think it was a nice thing to share. And it, it personally reflects some of the thoughts I've had on where these discussions are going recently, Greg, which is at least the way I've been summarizing it to people is I think research is becoming far more informal than it used to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we used to get all wrapped around the axle about some of the things that you were talking about, like, oh, well, we didn't have this number of people, so maybe it's like not as good of research and, well, hell, maybe we shouldn't do it at all because we're not able to do this or recruit in this way or we, did, we weren't as rigorous and didn't have the time or the budget or yeah, right? All of a sudden, we get this pile of shit that stops us from just learning from people. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the question to be asked is, you know, if, if you had the opportunity to learn something from a small number of people or the opportunity to learn exactly what you wanted in the, in, in the most rigorous and scientifically perfect way from a slightly larger number of people, uh, but that was a lot harder to accomplish, which one would you choose? I mean, I, I think in that case, it's what's your organization going to support? You know, you have to fit the project and the scope to your day-to-day. So let's, let's say you had, you know, the, the huge sample size and you get all the answers, but it would take you three months, but your company works much faster than that. Well, then the research will be useless by the time you complete that survey. If I'm going to get signal from five people and it will get my team the information they need in a timely manner, I'm going to go with the five people because otherwise uh, I'm not doing my job uh, of sharing the information in a timely manner to the people who need it. So in that case, I think just get the signal, just talk to five people. And, and something that I've had people you know, offer rebuttals, well, what if those five people are all wrong? They're all edge cases. They're not the right person. And the data you get back is, is not right. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you're not going to stop doing research and say, oh, well, let's never interview people again. We spoke to the five wrong people. That's an argument for, okay, let's plan to do 10 interviews next time, or let's plan ahead next time instead of waiting until the end. Let's let's interview more people ahead of time, and then more people during the project. You know, you you work in a better way to get those in, those insights, but you have to start with what's realistic. And to me, it's all about what's practical, uh, what's going to fit your team's needs. And if that's enough, great. If if you need more, great. Uh, again, I'm just I'm happy that research is happening. Every project is a chance to learn from what worked and what didn't work and, and try something different or bigger and better next time. 
And eventually, I think that all coalesces into that's when you get to research maturity. That's when you hire more people in specialized roles versus just having somebody who's trying to answer everything. Yeah, I love that answer personally um, because I agree with with most, if not all, of what you said. And it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I agree, meet people halfway at least. You know, we're going to have to make some concessions because of something we discussed earlier where if you don't and the research doesn't happen, that work will get done. Mm-hmm. So, so that work will get done, Yep. <laughs> uh, whether it's informed by something we actually know about the people we're making it for or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, I would rather have work that's informed by some user insights than the work that, <laughs> that is just a guess. Right, right. Um, and, and that was kind of where my, what, what bred the line of questioning I, I, I kind of gave yeah. you, right? Which is like, in that case where we know maybe these people are already working on this thing, this feature, this product, whatever. And we know we can only fit in five interviews, but ideally we'd like to do 15. Does that mean that we should throw baby out with the bathwater and not do it at all because it's not, you know, scientifically rigorous? Or should we get those five people's insights to inform whatever we can before this goes out the door? You know, I, I tend to err on the side of, uh, of the latter there where, yeah, hell yeah, we ought to talk to those people because there might be something there. We avoid something disastrous because this thing's going to go out the door no matter what. Right. And even a sample size of one, if you talk to one person and you get their story, well, that story is powerful because this is somebody who, let's say it's an interview with somebody who uses your product. That's a real person telling you how they use your product. It's not a guess. It's grounded in reality. You have context. That's powerful. People can latch onto that. Mm -hmm. That's a scenario that then they can work into how they're building this thing that they're working on. Um, I I will take one story any day over, you know, over no research at all. If somebody says I only spoke to one person, that's a start. You know, we'll do better next time. You know, hopefully we'll speak to more than one person. But if it's one or zero, I'll take the one. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, that's so important. To, for, for all of us to keep at the top of our mind, right? Because, uh, because again, it's one of those things where like somebody's going to make a decision based on some set of information, <laughs> whether it's information that only lives in their head or information we gathered from whatever number of people who are actually making this thing for mm-hmm. can make a huge difference. And, and I think that our, you know, our, our, our lack of confidence or, or, you know, we get sort of uneasy about this well, we didn't do as many interviews as I wanted. Well, that's okay because, you know, part of our job is finding themes and patterns in this data, in this research, right? To yep. then communicate something out. And so, of course, a sample size of one does not give us very much confidence in that. But the reality is it's still representative of something, to your point, right? Yes. And yeah, so, these are real people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so making, <laughs> making broad sweeping decisions off of, one data point of reality as opposed to zero is actually still 100% better, right? Right, right. <laughs> Statistically, that's still 100% better. And, and of course, you know, if it's a question about like, we're thinking of moving this button or we're going to change how we label something, um, you know, let's say the sample size of one leads you to make a decision and it's the wrong decision. You get some support tickets. It's code. We can roll it back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would never say that we should use a sample size of one to go into a new line of business or spin up a new product. Uh, obviously, that's, that, that would be a misuse of research. But 
you know, depending on the size of the question, the, the scope, just, yeah, one is better than nothing. Uh, but, you know, as with all things, there's, there's, uh, there's disclaimers, you know, don't, don't start a new business based on a sample size of one. That would be a, a terrible use of research. Right. No, I, you know, I think that's very, very fair to bring up to where, and I have to imagine anybody listening to this probably already knows it, but it's very much worth explicitly calling out, you know, the things you and I are discussing right now primarily apply to digital products and services. Like you said, it's code. Yep. You know, these are, uh, these things have a shelf life that are pretty short as it is mm -hmm. um, just because of the nature of the world right now. But of course, if you're, if you're talking about building software and interfaces that help people uh, get to the moon and beyond, well, you gotta yeah, spend a little bit more time <laughs> right. figuring out what works in that context. And, uh, and for those of you who are listening that do that kind of work, you know who you are and disregard what we're saying about that. But ultimately, <laughs> you know, ultimately, I think, I think the bigger challenge here is that people are not bringing the folks, the other human beings they're making things for into their organization. And I, and I even mean that like honorarily, right? Like their thoughts and needs and behavior into their decision-making every day. And so the more and more we can do that, we ought to seize that opportunity. And I would say, I would challenge anybody who touches user research to go further, uh, you know, you, you talked about design ops and we talked about research ops and, you know, I, I see a lot of methodologies, you know, there's, there's all these things that we do as teams, uh, you know, how do we, I guess there's the Stanford D school, uh, design process. There's a zillion models that we could pull from, but I would challenge researchers to think beyond their product team. And don't just include the voice of the user, but include the voice of the accounting team, include the voice of the sales team or the marketing team. I think uh, in a previous episode, Jim Callback made a similar point. You know, we limit our lens to the product and the product users, uh, the product creators. There's so much more that goes into the organization and the organizational decision making and, and what determines the success of the organization. So when we're researching these, problems and these questions, there's perspective within our companies that we have got to include. Like, let's say we are successful. What does this mean for our bottom line? What are the things that the marketing team needs to, what, what would help the marketing team be successful in spreading the good news about this thing we're building? So it's not just including the voice of the user, but I always try to include the voice of other people in the building who have either uh, a stake in the success of the product or have information that will help the success of the product. Yeah, no, that's huge. And, um, you know, this is, a, this is audio, so you can't see <laughs> me <laughs> nodding vigorously in agreement with everything that Greg's saying right now. But, but it, uh, it very much aligns, actually, with a talk I've been giving recently, Greg. Uh, it's the, the kind of the foundation of that talk is, you know, we talk so much about building empathy with people we design for. And mm -hmm. doing research and understanding the people we design and make things for, and we don't often do a good job or do it at all in understanding the people we work for or with. And that's a huge point. And I'm actually really glad that you called that out too, because I think Jim highlighted that very well, Jim Callback in that episode, where it's understand the context that our work happens. You know, yeah. uh, as designers and researchers and product people, we love to talk about empathy. We love to talk about context. But we're missing uh, many slices of the pie. I won't even say a slice of the pie. We're missing yeah. many slices of the pie to understand 
the function that our work plays in this in this larger view of you know everything that we're doing. Yeah, and um, I, I'd like to see that talk because I, I um, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head as well. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I've got a couple of those coming up soon, and I don't know how to actually announce them, <laughs> depending on when we're going to edit this podcast. But um, yeah, man, I mean that's 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 a big deal. You know, we we need to understand the people we work with and for just as well as we understand the people we make things for, our customers or our users, whatever you want to label them as. Because only then can we make the most sound recommendations that actually meet the needs of both. That's the thing that I'm super passionate about, right? And that's, believe it or not, that's actually why I love research. Because it's not about just suggesting things that meet, you know, uh, observed needs and behavior. It's also this, this art and science of helping people understand how meeting those needs help you as a business and as an organization. That's a great point. I love it. Well, I've peaked. We should definitely cut the podcast off <laughs> at this point. So uh, this, this brings us to, you know, we get philosophical in this podcast and mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh, it's good. It's actually designed. I want to ask you a super big question here, Greg, which is All right. what, are the th- what is like the one thing you feel like the industry of user research, building digital products and services ought to be focusing on that isn't? I, I think I would reiterate that point of we need to think bigger in terms of who we're including in our research. There's so much accounting data. There's, you know, is your product being sold more internationally? If so, where? Uh, because that, that's, that leads to a localization question. That leads to a billing page question. Uh, it leads to, uh, you know, legal compliance uh, issues, you know, how do we, how do we service our users in, in other regions? Uh, every part of an organization is equally important, but just because we sit in the user-facing portion, uh, we just assume that that's most important. So I think I see user research, I, I would like to see user research head into a more holistic direction where we're not just thinking about our users, we're thinking about the entire organization and the health of the organization. And I think that informs the product experience, but it also, it makes the research more valuable to an entire organization, which can only lead to more research. You know, once you give people this wonderful information, they're going to ask for more of it because it's going to help people do their jobs better. I think it's good for all of us. If, if we start sharing this information and including the voices of other people in the organization that have traditionally been left out it's good for all of us and it's good for our industry. I love it. Um, I personally share that vision. We, we share that vision at Aurelius Greg. And, and I would like to hope that even our conversation we're having today helps take us at least one step forward in that. Those are, those are high hopes and uh, I, I'd like to meet them one day. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, we're coming up towards the end of our time and I want to be respectful of that for you. Uh, I am very sure we can discuss this for at least another hour. Um, But unfortunately, we don't have that time. So I'm going to ask you a question here. Through everything that we discussed, if, uh, you know, if I had temporary amnesia right now, and I forgot all (laughs) of it, and there was one main takeaway you think that folks listening to this episode should remember, what would that be? 
I think the most important thing we can all remember is that we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. And what I mean is, if the sample size of one is all you have, that's fine. Don't get hung up on what is the industry standard, what you read in a book. That can come later. If you need to get the ball rolling by just doing what's practical, go for it. You're not going to, unless you're building bridges or you know surgical tools, you're not going to break anything. Right. Certainly nothing that you can't fix very quickly right. with a release or, or a hot fix, a patch. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Awesome. I love that answer. I think that that sums up a lot of what we talked about really well. And um, again, I just, I would echo your sentiments and, and I'm very glad to hear you share that. So Greg, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with the people listening to this episode that we haven't had a chance to cover in our conversation? Yes, I'm going to venture into self-promotion, which I am usually loath to do, but <laughs> since you ask, uh, I will be giving a new talk at Web Dagana in Oslo next month. And it's a talk about uh, including other parts of an organization in the research. And it's also about how everyone has the skills to do research. If you can plan a meal, if you can research what shoes to buy, you can do research. Uh, so it's a little bit about including other voices, but it's also about how those other voices can inform their work through practical research. Uh, so I'm giving that talk in Oslo next month. Uh, and then I'm also working on a book. Uh, the title is still kind of in flux. It's about practical research for product teams. But I think it's the 14th book with practical in the title to come out in the last 18 <laughs> months. Uh, but I'm working on a book that takes lessons from my time at MailChimp and what I'm doing at Vox about building research practice from, from nothing where there was no research before or there was ad hoc research. And what are the practical things that I could put in place? Uh, the thing that's different about this book is it's not heavy on method or process. It's here are some stories about how I did something. Here's what I learned from these stories. Maybe there's a lesson here that you'll take out of this as well. So it's really just, this is what worked for me. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. It, I was winging it, but this is what worked. Uh, and I'm hoping to have that out, uh, hopefully, spring of 2019. That's wonderful. I Both of those actually sound extremely interesting to me and very timely, particularly given our conversation. And I think things that are being discussed at, at, uh, at a pretty high rate in our industry right now. I hope so. Uh, the sales of this book depend on it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, well, we're going to help you by, at the very least, including links in our show notes to all that stuff. For those useling, uh, go ahead and head over on to our site, and we'll link those out. And you can find uh, information about you know the the conference Greg's talking about, as well as his book. And um, I will just wrap all of this up, Greg, by saying I very much enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was my pleasure. I feel like we could continue talking into the night. Uh, and so maybe we'll have to do that sometime. But thank you for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Very much. And uh, all right, everybody, that's Greg Bernstein. And uh, we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to the Aurelius podcast. 
the show where we talk with brilliant minds about user research, UX design, and building great products that meet the needs of real people and what you learned about them. Aurelius is a user research and insights tool for design and product teams. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research notes and customer feedback insights to figure out what you learned faster and easier than ever before so you can make awesome designs, products, and features. Check us out for a free trial at AureliusLab.com. That is A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Or find us on Twitter at AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.